Can you believe it's already time to be thinking about that? It's always a good time to be thinking about love and the Lord. And in fact, our sermon today is perfectly suited for those topics because it's rooted in the book known as Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And it's a love song. But actually, it seems an interesting or perhaps even an odd place to find the source of our subject today because I'm going to be talking about little foxes. And I don't mean foxy looking, as the phrase used to be, but I mean foxy thinking. You know, in the old fairy tales, it was often a fox or a wolf or some other predator that was the primary enemy and adversary. And so it is in our subject today. I want to talk about the enemy. And I want to talk about the enemy not to give more focus and attention to someone who seems to frankly love it, but doesn't really need it or warrant it or deserve it, except that you and I are in a battle. And if you're in a battle, you need to know your enemy. It is a dangerous thing to step onto the battlefield and not be aware of your enemy. It is a very foolish thing to step onto a battlefield and not even know that you're on a battlefield. In other words, to not even know that you have an enemy. And of course, it is therefore one of the enemy's purposes to pull the wool over your eyes, as it were. That's why wolves sometimes come in sheep's clothing. But you may say, how is it that we're on the subject of a battlefield if our topic this year and in this sermon series is harvest? Well, that's because the harvest field is a battlefield. And if you go back to the very beginning, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, you'll see that one of the reasons why that is, is because of sin. The enemy himself turned the harvest field into a battlefield. He did it with the turn of a tongue. He did it with a lie, as he always does. He's the father of lies. And so it is that the enemy operates through deception. Therefore, the love of the Lord involves truth. And it is truth that defeats the deception of the devil. Maybe you heard that old-time phrase that's not often said anymore, but it's still something of a cliche that lingers around. Tell the truth and shame the devil. Sounds like something the church lady would have said, right? Well, could it be Satan? <laughs> Tell the truth and shame the devil. Well, the reason is because the devil depends on deceit. So telling the truth pulls the rug out from the one who wants to pull the wool over your eyes. It's important for us to recognize that we have an enemy. It's important for us to know the enemy. But it's also important that we not fear the enemy. And if deceit is one of the primary tools of the enemy, it may be said that fear is perhaps the primary emotion. In the same way that truth is the primary tool of the Lord, and love is the primary emotion of God. The very definition of God, in fact. For the scriptures say God is love. And the scriptures also say that the enemy operates through fear. But consider this. It's not just that he uses fear. It's that he has fear. The enemy himself is afraid. And his greatest fear involves you realizing that he is you realizing who he is. And therefore today, I want to talk to you about the foe of the harvest, not 
so that we would become fixated upon him and tripped up and being overly interested in him, which is a danger, but so that we would be aware of our enemy and more importantly, aware of our savior who overcomes the enemy. The Lord's already spoken to us to some extent in this very worship service about this subject during our ministry time together. And he's going to speak further through his word. As he does that, let us pray that he would use me, his servant, well, and that all of us would have open ears and open hearts to hear what the Lord says to us today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we do live in a fearful world where we recognize that evil is at work. And sometimes, Lord, we get discouraged and confused, wondering where you are or why you allow what you allow. Other times we may be so caught up in things of the world or things of our lives that seem important or even interesting and fun that we could potentially lose our grip on your truth or lose our way on your path. We are aware that you give warning, Lord, that we are to be on our guard, that we are to be sober and alert. So we ask that through your word today and by your spirit today, you would help sharpen our awareness and heighten our alertness and strengthen our spirit, that you would deliver us from all evil and that you would deliver the enemy into your hand through strengthening ours. In the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I confess it. As a little kid, I think I was addicted to TV. I love to watch the TV. I was having a conversation with somebody this week, and I said, in my home, when they, I don't even know if they still publish TV Guide, but there used to be a magazine that you could buy in the store or came to your home called the TV Guide. And in my household, I was known as the walking TV Guide because I would read it from cover to cover as soon as it arrived or as soon as we got it. And I would know everything that was on that week. It didn't matter whether I liked the show or not. It didn't matter whether I was going to watch it or not. I knew everything. It's not a very admirable thing. That's why I say I confess it. But I had that, uh, I had that interest. Now, I grew up in a time and in a place where there were only three channels available to begin with, and none of them came through very clearly. It was sort of the, the, the one that had the least amount of static, the one who had maybe a moderate static, and then the most static. And that was the way that we could observe television in my home. But I remember one day, before I even started school, I was, so I was probably three or four years old, and I was watching Sesame Street. I remember that distinctly. And, I, and it was a... It was a Beautiful day, beautiful sunny day. I'm watching Sesame Street, and right in the middle of, I don't know, Snuffleupagus saying something to Big Bird, the whole picture went snowy. You know, that horrible static image of just black and white beads scattering like snow across your screen. And I don't know what sound came out of me. It was probably something like, ah, you know, what happened to the TV? And I went racing around the house. What? The TV's gone. The TV's gone. Now, I don't know that I had ever really considered how it was that those people got into that box in my home. I just knew that there was this magical place where you could tune in to all of these people that just ushered in from the ether somehow. And so when it went away, I was, I was horrified, but I was also mystified because it... it it's not until you lose something sometimes that you really begin to think how it is you got it in the first place. And I remember my mother saying, well, the antenna has probably been knocked down. <laughs> this is another throwback to another era, right? But it used to be that you had to have an antenna up on your roof to be able to get those lousy signals that you could barely get. 
And so I had to wait until my father got home at the end of the day for the antenna to be corrected all that day without TV. Oh, such a thing. Somehow that story came to my mind this morning when we were all gathered together in worship and we were singing, even when I don't see you, you're working. Even when I don't feel you, you're working. Because I remember my mother saying to me at that time, the TV's not gone. That, that show is not gone. It's still there. We're just not capturing it. Because the, the point of reception has been struck down. It's fallen. You know, the wind blew it over. Some, some, some gust came down and took it out. But it's still there. And if you could just lift that, that arm back up into the air, you could tap into that signal. Sometimes we feel like in moments as we've had this morning, it's, it's our effort that is somehow materializing the experience of God in our midst. But I want to say much more powerfully than any television signal that has ever been, the presence of God is constantly there. Perhaps a more organic image is this. Even on the cloudiest day, the sun is still there. Even when you don't see it. Even when you don't feel it. And in fact, if the sun went out, so would we. So no matter how deep and dark the night, no matter how far turned away we are, no matter how bitter the storm, the reality is the sun is still there. So it is with the Lord, even more so. The Lord is always there. The enemy cannot take out the signal of the Spirit. But what he can do is knock down our antenna. He can knock us down. And we are of the type, like children, when that happens, we go, ah, what happened? God's gone. And we go running around the household of our lives trying to figure out what happened, what went wrong. And many times what we simply need to do is raise up our hand again, raise up our heart again. Or if you can't do that, and sometimes we can't, you call upon the Father. The Father who is not away, but who is right there to raise up your spirit to receive his signal that's always there, always strong. But there is a point of faith that you and I have, and it's this even when we don't see that happening, even when we don't feel that happening, we believe that God does that and we trust in him. That's the truth. The enemy uses the lie and the lie is that God doesn't care or that God doesn't want you or that God isn't there. And of course, as I said, the other lie that the enemy likes to use is that he's not there either. He knows how to talk to you and I very, very well in our voice. I'm convinced that the devil's a ventriloquist. He knows how to speak to you or to me in a way that sounds like our own inner thought, our own inner life. And you and I can be misled by that. In fact, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have the word of the Lord as a part of our regular daily life. Because the word of the Lord will help us discern the spirit by which we are being guided. But remember this, the enemy knows the word too, and he knows how to twist it. That's why it's important that you not only know the word, but that the word is alive in you, that you know the Lord 
so that the Lord can remind you what his word means and how it's applied. Maybe you read it this week in the New York Times. There was an op-ed piece by a so-called religious scholar. I'm not trying to be um, obnoxious or, or, or cute in saying so-called. I'm not familiar with the body of the man's work, but it's clear that he's highly educated in theological studies. I'm not going to mention him by name primarily because I'm not interested in getting into a personal uh, 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 debate with him about the points that he put forward in this New York Times op-ed. But what I will say is on the basis of the opinion piece that was published, which I think it's legitimate to make a judgment based on a published work in such a notable paper, whether you like it or not, it's a significant publication, not only in this country but in the world, I think it's fair to read that and say, on the basis of what he put forward, I wasn't impressed with his scholarship. I'm not saying that as though I'm a better scholar, but I know enough of the word to know that what he wrote isn't true, which is sad to me because this isn't just a scholar, but a so-called Christian. And the title that the op-ed was put forward under is this, Why Do Some People Believe in Hell? Now, the subject of the opinion piece was whether hell is real and why anybody would want it to be real, which might seem a rather curious question, but I think there is some merit to asking it. I understand where he's coming from. It isn't the particular point of my teaching today, and it did make me aware that that's probably a sermon that needs to be brought, and maybe even in this year. What is it that the Bible really says about the place of judgment? Because when we're talking about hell, it's true that the scripture uses many different words and in many different contexts, that are sometimes translated as hell, and there's some nuance to that. But let me cut through a lot of the scholarly labyrinth of side trails that I think were put forward in that opinion piece and others like it, and say what seems very clear to most anybody who's ever read the scriptures. The scriptures teach that there is a time when people are judged for their lives. That's what the scripture teaches. And really, anybody that calls that into question is double dealing with you. They're not being honest with you about what Jesus himself makes very plain in his language. People live and are judged. It's not just Jesus, though. That's not some innovation of Jesus. That is throughout the entire Bible, the Hebrew Bible as well as the Christian New Testament. It's true that our ideas about what that judgment will be, how it will come and when, evolve as we read through the scriptures. But Recognize this, that's an evolving understanding on our part. It's not God changing his mind about anything. God is plain and puts forward a pure truth. And that truth involves certain fundamental realities, which really, it's important that we not lose touch with them. I don't mean to say they can never be questioned. For instance, I've talked before, and you may have heard the discussion about something that is often termed the problem of evil. How is it that we can believe that God is and that God is good and loving when there is so much evil and so much bad and wrong that is done in the world, and often even in his name? That's a problem that philosophers and theologians deal with. It's a problem that all of us have to grapple with. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we all have to come to an understanding about that because that is part of our experience in this world. Then there's another question that revolves around that notion, which is, if God allows these things, how is it right or righteous for him to judge anybody else for them? In other words, how can God judge people for doing wrong if God who knows all and sees all and can do anything 
allows it. Why create people like that? For that matter, why create a devil? And so sometimes the solution that people come to is to start to erase some of those realities and to say, you know, actually, God doesn't know everything or isn't all-powerful. Or he does, but there is no ultimate evil. There is no devil. And it may be tempting in a modern age to see these as more rational, reasonable explanations of the reality of our world. But I want to call your attention to something. Whenever people who are supposedly uh, disciples of Jesus begin to call into question whether there really is any eternal judgment or whether there really is any devil, something interesting happens. They often start by affirming that there is God and there is love, but when they begin to erase the reality of judgment and of an enemy, they inevitably begin to erase the reality of God. Not that you actually can. Like I said, you can't wipe out the signal of God. But what happens is the antenna of your faith begins to crumble. Am I saying, therefore, that it's necessary for there to be evil in order for there to be good? No. But I will say this. It is possible that if there is good, it potentiates evil. This is a little complicated, but what I mean by that is if something is good, it involves the possibility of standing against that goodness. If there's going to be freedom, and freedom is good, isn't it? We recognize that a good and loving God would create entities that have the freedom to make choices. This is what we know of as free will. And it's not just something that human beings have. After all, there are angelic beings described in the scriptures, and they also have a will by which they determine whether they will act in obedience or disobedience. And though we may not have a complete understanding of the angelic will, I don't suppose that any of us have a complete understanding of human will. What we do know is this. Each one of us has agency. We have the ability to make choices. Talaga. And as we make choices in our lives, we are making choices about whether we are living in obedience and adherence with the things of God or not. And when we say not, then there isn't just an empty blank canvas on the other side. There's an enemy who is the originator of such choices. Now, some people might say, I, I like the idea of God, or I can get on board with the idea of God, but I'm uncomfortable with the idea of a devil. And often the conversation devol uh, devolves at that point to talking about some guy in a silly red suit with horns and the pitchfork and cloven hooves, as though the fact that there have been illustrations of this entity who obviously is invisible somehow invalidates their reality. But God also is not visible to us, except in as much as we have seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. But we've also seen the things that God does. So we see the things that the devil does. And it's important to recognize that Jesus does not talk about the devil as a symbol. He talks about the devil. He talks about the adversary, the enemy, Satan. All of these are basically synonyms 
for the same individual, a figure who suffices to say the scripture does not give exclusive attention to. In other words, the Bible never puts him forward as a main character that we are to learn about. Instead, the Bible reveals the devil at work in our world. But the subject of the story is always God and God's people. And yet, in that story, there are enemies. And the devil is the chief adversary, not just of us, but of God. Why it is that God allows that? probably goes beyond what you and I can understand. And doesn't that seem reasonable? We're talking about entities that are much more powerful than us. What we need to recognize is God has not made this a confusing subject. And if it is in God's will not to give us all the details about the devil, we ought to at least listen to the details that he does give, right? We ought to at least recognize that when Jesus is talking about the devil, he's not just telling a story. Here's a proof in point of that. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the soils? He talked about how some seed falls on the road and a bird comes and eats it. There's other seed that falls in good soil and it brings forth a multiplied harvest. Well, I want to say right there that in that parable, you see that the enemy is part of the story of harvest. He's the foe of harvest. He's the opponent of harvest. If the seed would have brought forth multiplication, if the bird hadn't come along and eaten it, then you recognize that the bird is devouring something that isn't meant for it, at least not in that story. Now, Jesus specifically explains that parable. His disciples come to him and say to him, the way you might feel like saying to me sometimes, why can't you speak a little more plainly? Why do you teach in this way? Why do you tell them stories, they ask Jesus. Why don't you just make it plain? And Jesus basically says to them, it is the way that I am supposed to teach. They are supposed to hear the story, but you get to hear the explanation. And here's the blessing of the word. That explanation has now been extended to everyone, anyone who would listen to it. So Jesus says, here is the explanation. In the story, the seed is the word of God. And in the story, the bird is the devil. Now, here's a fact. You don't tell a story using symbols and then say, I'm going to explain what the symbols mean and use the symbol to explain another symbol. That means that the devil is not a symbol. The devil is a person, a reality. And that's not the only place, but there are many other places in Scripture, not least of which is the fact that Jesus himself has a personal encounter with Satan in the wilderness during his fast. And lest you think that's symbolic, I use the story of the parable to make it clear. Jesus recognized this is a real entity. Invisible, yes, but no less real. So in a year of harvest, we need to be aware that our enemy is not easily seen and not easily scared off, but he is a defeated foe. Turn to the person next to you and say, the devil doesn't win. Well, I'm behind. Is it okay? Okay. I'm glad it's okay because it's a fact of life. I'm behind right now, so let me catch up a bit. We're in a sermon series, and I want to take you a bit through it just to remind you where we're at. The last week, the last Sunday of, of the last year, we started this series with a handbook for harvest. And it was 
a reminder to us that harvest is really about spiritual results in our world. It includes witnessing. And there's real work for us to do in this harvest. But it's righteous work and it's satisfying work. We talked two weeks about, ago about the glow of harvest. That harvest involves feasting. It is about realizing the results of God's righteousness in our world. And part of our focus in that teaching time was to remember that in the midst of this labor that the Lord has called us to, we recognize it's a labor of love. And there's joy, the joy of the Lord that strengthens us for us. So enjoy this time this opportunity to share the good news of God. Don't let the enemy get you so down that you forget how high up God has seated you with him in righteousness. And it's out of that joy and the enjoyment of the things of the Lord that you and I are strengthened to face the foe that we face. In the book of uh, Song of Songs, we hear about little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that before we conclude today. But in the weeks to come, we're going to continue in this series. Having looked at a practical primer for harvest and the glow of harvest that gives us the joy into which we enter into it, we also have talked now about the foe of the harvest and we will move on to talking about the sow of the harvest, that the Lord calls us to pray, to pray for more laborers. And in that, there is a process of growth that we are to participate with as well as a call to go, to go out and spread the good news of the Great Commission. So this series is really about building up our practical witness to God, founded upon our pure joy in God, listening carefully to the potent warnings from God. Because what we are engaged in is important, and as I've said before, it's not just a harvest, it's also a battle. Now, the victory is the Lord's, and it's already secured. In the same way that the harvest of the crop is already in the ground before the shoots even come up, but there's work to be done to see that harvest brought forth. Powerful prayer to God is a point of our purpose in looking at a year of harvest. Pressing in in order to grow up and mature in the things of Lord, and then pressing on to go out and give forth the good news of God. So I hope that you would sort of take a mental snapshot of this because over the next few weeks, we'll be continuing in this. We're about at a, a kind of a halfway mark here in this series and always a good time to sort of step back and remember the bigger picture of what we're learning about. Let's turn to a point of focus on how to address the foe of harvest. These warnings from God about the little foxes that spoil the vineyard and the lions that are lying in wait always around the corner of our lives. First of all, the Song of Solomon, as I said, is a love story. It is called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs because in the first verse of the book, which is an Old Testament book, part of the wisdom literature of the, of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament times, indicates that it is a song of songs, that is to say, a glorious song, the best of songs, the song to beat all songs, as it were. And it is specifically a love song. It says that it is of Solomon or to Solomon. So it may be that it was written by him. That's one of the most uh, common suggestions. Or it may be that it was written about him. 
In fact, both of those things may be true. It's not necessarily so important for us to nail down that because we don't know for a certainty. What we do know is it's part of the inspired scripture of the Lord that is offered to us to show us several things. One is the beauty of love between a man and a woman, the romantic covenant love of marriage. In fact, if you're looking for a good time, you may want to read through the Song of Solomon, if it's okay for me to say so, because it's one of the places where, yes, the scripture celebrates sensual love between a man and a woman, something which God made and which God loves and which produces life. It is intended for a covenant relationship. The covenant is marriage. And of course, marriage, we recognize, is not just how God put human beings in relationship with one another, but also how he puts us in relationship with himself. The body of Christ is called the bride of Christ. The return of Christ is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in this book that is a song of songs, not only do we see the beauty of marital love and relations, but we see the even greater beauty of the love of God for his people. Now, in this particular passage, chapter 2, what we have is the young man who is often seen as Solomon, the prince, the king, the son of David, by the way, a man of um, unsurpassed wisdom because that is what he asked the Lord to give him, wisdom, and the Lord was glad to give him that and much more. It's true that Solomon went on to have troubles in his life, as we all do, but in this uh, Song of Solomon, we see him as a kind of ideal figure. Now, it may not be Solomon that is the young man, but in any case, he is the bridegroom, and we ought to see him in these ideal terms. In fact, both the bridegroom and his bride, a young Shulamite woman, are described as being young, healthy, strong, vigorous, beautiful, and in love with each other physically in love with each other, emotionally in love with each other, spiritually in love with each other. And their love produces fruitfulness. In fact, the Shulamite woman has a garden in the song. And her garden is extremely fruitful. And throughout this poetic work, there is a symbolic uh, parallel between the love of the man and the woman and the fruitfulness of the garden. Well, you and I can recognize that that parable extends to spiritual things. We spoke at great length during our time last year in a year of fruitfulness, talking about John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you bear much fruit. Well, the Song of Solomon declares that same notion, that there is a harvest that comes out of the heart when God's love is filling that heart. Now, there's also brothers of the Shulamite woman in the song. And these brothers have a point where they come and sing a chorus and they say to the bridegroom, presumably, catch the little foxes for us. In other words, they're talking about her garden. They're talking about her vineyard. And they're saying her vineyard is wonderful and, and, it, and it feeds all of us. I mean, in other words, the fruitfulness of her work provides for everyone. But there are these little foxes that steal in. Now, if you've ever seen a vineyard, you know that there's lots of places for little four-footed friends to hide. And when I say friends, I mean foes, fiends, I should say. Four-footed fiends who like to come in and nibble and grab and take what isn't theirs. Like the bird that swoops down to steal the seed off the side of the road, so the fox reaches up to grab the grapes that aren't his. And these brothers are saying, lest some of these foxes come in and take away from the fruitfulness, 
send those foxes fleeing. My mind is called back to another hero of the Old Testament. Do you remember when Samson put torches on the tails of the foxes? Not only sending them fleeing, but striking down the enemies. Well, probably what's primarily being described here is the fact that the foxes are symbolic of little things that can end up having a lot of harm. They may not pure and simple be referring to the enemy, but I want to use the passage, this verse, as a springboard to talk about the devil. The first thing to recognize is the song is affirming, even though there's these little fiends in our midst, the bridegroom is greater. The bridegroom is better. He is able to make them flee. So the first thing that I want to say about the enemy is recognize that you have one. Recognize that he's there. It's not just you. Do you know sometimes when you feel like you're so down, it's not always just you. Somebody's trying to put you down. When you have negative self-talk going on in your mind, it's not just you. You ever talk to yourself that way? Why am I so stupid? Why did I do that again? Now, you might say, well, I am stupid, and I did do it again, and maybe you did, but be careful, because behind that mask is not just you, but someone else who wants to take that chink in your own sense of self-worth and rip a hole in the wall of your heart and use that to come in and steal what isn't his. I don't mean to say that we should just excuse anything that's wrong about us. But what I will say is this. The Lord doesn't want us to tear ourselves down. He wants us to throw ourselves down at his feet and to trust in him. But to recognize that there's an enemy at work in your emotions. Do you ever have a day where it just seemed like everything went wrong and by the time you came home, your wife or your husband said something nice to you or maybe your child and you roared at them and you recognize it's not because of them. It's because of everything else that I've been dealing with. That's little foxes out there trying to come in and wreak havoc in your home. So the solution to that maybe is to not let those outside things get you so down. But another solution is to recognize when that happens, and it happens to all of us, it's a good time to say, I'm sorry. I've had a really bad day. That doesn't excuse me yelling at you. Maybe it's a good time to pray together. Would you pray with me? I'm so worn out by what's going on at work. I'm so stressed by my supervisor. She's, she's writing me up, and it's not fair. I'm so frustrated because my boss keeps putting more on me, and I don't know how to tell him I can't take any more, or whatever it is. Maybe it's just the drive home drives me up the wall, you know, and you feel like I, I talk about little foxes, right? Remember that it's not just you, and it's not just other people. There's an enemy. Also, be careful about getting casual about these things. Little lapses and minor grievances can add up. Don't ignore the small things. You and I think, well, I know this isn't exactly the right thing to do, but nobody's really looking. I can, I can take that. I can ignore that. I said something I shouldn't have said, but I don't really need to go back and apologize for it. It's just a little thing. Be careful. That little thing can gobble up a lot more. You need to get it out. If there's something that you're allowing in your life, I'm just going to look at this one video. It's okay. Not exactly right, but it's not exactly wrong. Watch out. That's a little fox. 
And later on, when you say, where did my harvest go? The Lord might come and say, that little fox that you left at your feet, it ate up everything. You didn't think it was a big deal, but I told you, watch out. And I would put that out of your life if you would let me. Or I would show you how you need to send it to flight. But if you just sit there and let it do what it's going to do. Been at a picnic and, and one or two ants come and you think, well, it's one or two ants. But if you just let the ants keep coming, pretty soon there's nothing left for you to eat. In fact, you're the one being eaten. These little things, little lapses, little white lies, but they become something big and grave if we allow them. You think, well, I, I don't know how to deal. Maybe there's something big that I'm facing, and I don't know how to get rid of it, or I don't know how to come against it. Call on the Lord, like the brothers do. They say, catch these little foxes for us. That is the people of the bride, the family of the bride, calling on the bridegroom and saying, will you catch these foxes? They're little, and we know that they can't win, but there's too many of them for us. And the bridegroom comes through and wipes them all out, sweeps them all away. Call on the Lord. He knows, as a good shepherd, how to get rid of the wolves. He knows, as a good vine dresser, how to send the foxes fleeing. Now, there's an inner place where the enemy can attack. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a story, and I'm not going to go into great detail with it, but it's with Cain and Abel, where the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Here's how it comes about. Cain and Abel both bring an offering from what they have to the Lord. Cain brings an offering from the field. Abel brings an offering from his flock. But Abel brings the best of his flock, and Cain brings the least of his field. And the Lord's not pleased with that because the Lord recognizes that Cain's heart is not in his worship and Cain's trust is not in the Lord, whereas Abel's is. Now, Cain knows that to be true, but instead of changing his ways, he gets mad at God and mad at his brother. In fact, so angry that he ultimately kills his brother. What the Lord says to Cain when Cain's heart is not right is, why are you upset? If you do what's right, I'm going to accept it. But if you don't do what is right, you need to recognize it doesn't stop there. Sin is crouching at your door. Will you turn to the person next to you and say, sin is crouching at our door? All of us have this as a reality. Now listen. The sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin, how can sin desire? Sin is anything that opposes the will of God, right? But here, sin is described as a personality. It has a desire. An inanimate thing does not have a desire. So sin here is the serpent. Sin is Satan. The source of disobedience. The source of dishonesty. So here God is saying sin has a source, a personal source that wants to have you, wants to eat you, wants to control you. But I've intended that you should control it, that you should be the head and not the tail. You should be the victor and not the victim. But you've got to master your own temptation. And it starts with what's right in your heart. In other words, if you're getting angry with God, you're giving place to the devil.
Now, listen, God's big, and some of us, we get angry from time to time, and that's a reality. But you don't want to harbor that in your heart. Go to God and get that out with him if you need to. But don't hold on to bitterness. Because of what Cain did, the Lord said, there's a result on your harvest. Now that you have done this and spilled your brother's blood on the ground, it's his blood that makes the ground bitter. When you work the ground, it won't yield its crops for you. If you and I harbor sin in our heart, if we dally with temptation, we cannot expect to reap a harvest. It will contradict and counteract that. So, here are some solutions. When sin is at the door of our heart, bring your best from the very first. You'll reap what you sow. God isn't mocked. So whatever we sow, that's what we're going to reap. If we sow bitterness, we'll reap bitterness. If we sow anger, we'll reap anger. I saw a sign, I saw a news article this week, and there was a person carrying a sign, and it said, stay angry. I know people are angry about a lot of things, but I'll tell you something. You know, you laugh, but that's a real powerful force in our world, and it has a source. The scripture says the anger of people does not satisfy the righteousness of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord knows how to be anger in righteous ways, but we don't. I understand why people might feel like it's important to be angry about unrighteousness, but actually what I would say is stay humble. Stay humble and stay focused on the Lord. Because anger produces anger, and it multiplies anger. But humility multiplies humility and peace. And blessed are the peacemakers. Beware of bitterness. Blaming God opens the door to the devil. Deception, division, destruction, death. In fact, if you were this week to read Galatians 6, 7, 8, and 9, that is Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, you would see that this very idea, I, I think uh, Paul perhaps even had in mind the story of Cain and Abel in some, uh, some fashion when he was writing it, perhaps. In any case, it describes this very idea that whatever you're planting, you're going to produce a multiplied version of it. So beware of bitterness because that will bring about deception, division, destruction, and death. In order to multiply harvest, we must master sin. Carnality, giving into the flesh, brings carnage, destruction. Galatians 6 puts it this way. If you sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh. And the flesh dies. It's wasting away and dying already. I know mine is. I had the flu all week. Talk about a fox in the vineyard. Had me down for the count. But God was good and brought me up. Thank you for your prayers, by the way. But, you know, the reality is the flesh is weak. So sow to the spirit. Holiness blossoms into harvest. Okay, that's point one. We're moving to point two. I know it's, it's a little bit long, but are you hanging in there with me? Okay, good. You'll get a benefit from this if you don't give up. That's what Galatians 6 says also. You'll reap a harvest if you don't lose your patience. Inside, there's a place of temptation we need to resist. But if sin is knocking at the door of our heart, sometimes, I'm speaking for myself now, sometimes temptation can be so overwhelming. Sometimes it can be so fast. Oh, this tongue of mine. They can spit out words of venom so fast. Just a little thing, but whew, once they're out into the air, what damage they can do, right? 
like a spark, like a flame. Have you ever been speaking and you're realizing I'm lighting the whole house on fire and I need to stop, but I don't know how to stop and I don't want to? Well, I felt that way. And I want to say we all fail, but that doesn't mean we should give up. When we fail, we have one who can fix, who can heal. Sin is crouching at our door trying to get in, but Jesus is knocking at our door saying, let me come in and feast with you. I'll feed you. I'll strengthen you. If we flee from the devil, if we resist the devil, that is to say, he will flee from us. If we draw close to God, we will experience his closeness in us. So, we need to recognize that reality within. But how about in the world around us? Satan's prowling in our streets. Even if you and I are living a righteous life, we are living in an unrighteous world. The devil hunts his prey in that world like a ravenous lion. But God still enables us to resist the devil. In 1 Peter 5, someone who knows what it is to be desired by the devil speaks to the people of God about how to resist that. That someone is Peter. That is the apostle, Simon Peter. In the third point that I'm going to come to in just a minute, Jesus himself said to Peter, the devil wants you. Peter learned that to be true. And you know how he learned it to be true? Because Peter failed. And I'll tell you something. I'm grateful to God that God allowed Peter to fail so that I could learn what it looks like to fail and be redeemed. And maybe it's true that sometimes God might allow you and I to fail so that we could be a lesson for someone else. Because what Peter ends up saying is, you be encouraged by this truth that has been born out in his own life. You know, one of the things that will shame the devil is not just telling the truth, but telling the truth about you, about me. I think it's important to be able to come up in front of people and say, I've done really rotten things. I've said really rotten things. Now, I don't say I'm going to make a long list for you. We'd be here all day, and I wouldn't be able to finish, and you'd never want to see me again. <laughs> but the reality is our own failings and weaknesses need to be shared with each other when we are reminded of the truth that God forgives, that God redeems, that his grace is sufficient for us, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know how a devil, I used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins. I used to watch that on Sunday nights. And Always, the way it worked was the predator was looking at the, at the, you know, whatever, the wildebeests or the antelope and looking for the weak one, the slow one, the one that was singled out and alone. That's the one the predator would leap on. He's looking for low-hanging fruit. He's looking for an easy target. If you and I get separated from the body of Christ, you're a target for that lion. People say, well, I don't need to go to church because I just have my own spirituality. Well, guess what? You have an enemy who knows you're disconnected from the body and is ready to pounce. And you're not faster than him. You're not stronger than him. You're not smarter than him. But greater is he who is in you. But he who is in you has said, don't forsake being together. Draw in together. 
support one another. Even if you are the he-man or she-ra who can do it all on your own, what about the rest of us? Then we need you more than ever. And if you're really strong in the Lord, that ought to matter to you. We need you. And the truth is, you need us. And we all need him. And he's the one that says, stay together. Draw together. So resist him. Resist the enemy. Standing firm in your faith. How does the devil pounce? With doubts. Maybe God isn't there. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe I'm not good enough. But we can speak the truth and love to each other to come against those lies. How does the enemy do it? Through circumstances where you think, there's no one there to help me. Well, you have not because you ask not. Are you having financial issues? Maybe you need to come and ask for help. Are you having physical maladies? Maybe you need to ask for prayer. Are you having emotional distress? Maybe you need to get counseling. And it's good that you would speak to those things among the body of Christ so that you could get help and support. Peter said, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter's talking particularly about the fact that following Jesus involves people turning against us. He's saying, when you follow God, the enemy is going to bring other people against you. The spirit of the world is the spirit of the fox in the vineyard, the foe of the harvest. And that spirit will try to tear you down. And Jesus said, it will happen. And following me, Jesus said, will make it worse. But Jesus said, take heart and be of good courage. I've overcome that enemy. I've overcome the world. Hallelujah. So once again, humility helps the hunted. Proverbs 16.8 says that pride goes before destruction. That, that lone ranger attitude, that sense of I don't need help, I can do this on my own, I'm too smart for some of this devil talk, I'm too, uh, I'm too good to need to worry about all of these kinds of lessons from the scriptures, that's a pride that will bring you low. But if you want to shut the hungry lion's mouth, open your heart to the Lord and humble yourself before him and others. Keep on persevering even when there's persecution. Satan seeks to weaken and wear us down. Worry is the devil's workhorse. Worry. Listen, every time you and I are worrying, we are grinding the mill of the enemy. We are taking of the harvest of the Lord and grinding it for his own enemy. Don't worry about anything. That's what the scripture says. Instead, make your requests known to God and cast your cares upon the Lord, even as Peter says in this passage. Jesus said you can't solve anything by worrying, so don't worry. But the enemy wants us to worry because it works for him. Don't do it. Reject those lies. Trust in the Lord. Carry on in Christ. It's Jesus who will himself strengthen you as you look to him. Final point. Even though there is temptation within and persecution without, that is outside of us, over and above, as well as deep down within, greater is he who is in us and he strengthens us. Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you 
And he's not just talking about Peter. He's saying, I've prayed for you. And listen, Jesus' prayers get answered. It's odd for us to think of Jesus as praying because we recognize that he's God. But you know what prayer is? Prayer is conversation with God, and God is a community within himself. He is the three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who have enjoyed community eternally. When Jesus says he's prayed, what he's saying is from the inner heart of God, the love for you has issued a place of protection, of preservation. God himself has set himself to save you, but he has allowed the enemy certain access. Why? In the book of Job, he does the same. It is God's right and prerogative to do so. Let me say this. God is good and loving. If he has allowed it, he has a good and loving reason for it. So don't worry about that, but trust in him. But also, don't doubt that reality. And don't think you're beyond it. Peter was the one who said, even if everybody else betrays you, I'll never betray you. Maybe that's precisely why Jesus needed to show him that's not true because what Peter was saying was about his own strength. And no matter how resolved you are, your strength isn't enough. My strength isn't enough. It's our weakness that God wants. Our weakness that leads to witness. So it is that the Lord allows Satan certain things for God's purposes for a certain time. To sift you like wheat is to separate. You know that when wheat is gathered in, it's gathered in with all the chaff. That's the husk, the, the inedible, unusable, hard surrounding. And the good grain is within it. And the way that it has to be separated is you take, for instance, a pitchfork and you throw that wheat up into the air so that the chaff, which is of a different weight than the kernel of good grain, is separated in the wind. The idea here is... Satan wants to throw you around. Satan wants to blow you around. Like that antenna on the roof of my house as a child, Satan wants to bring you down and separate you from the signal of God. But perhaps what God is allowing is a separation that reveals what's really worthy from what's worthless. Jesus said, I'll separate goats from sheep. Jesus said, there are wheat and tares, that is wheat and weeds all sown together, but I will separate them out. And it is possible that part of that process is what we presently experience as trials and tests. And Jesus has said, Satan wants to have all of you, but I won't let him have all of you. But what I will let him have is I will let him have the opportunity to test you. That was part of the process with Job as well. And in that testing came much toil and trouble, but ultimately a multiplied reward. Jesus said, Simon, once you have your faith from me, encourage others. I like the fact that Jesus notices here that just like in the story of Job, Satan has to ask. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That's what Jesus said. Satan can't just do whatever he wants no matter how great he thinks he is. He doesn't have the power to do whatever he wants. He has to ask. And that means there is a greater power over him. So trust the Lord to be the one who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure, but who will give you a way out. Who will not allow you to be tested in any way that will destroy you if you will trust in him. 
and recognize once again that the enemy is also afraid. In the book of Revelation, it is said about him that he's filled with fury because he knows he doesn't have much time left. And if he's getting more furious, it just means that the time for his judgment is getting closer every day. Remember that and don't be afraid of him because he's afraid of you. He's afraid of the one who's in you. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I get boisterous and proud around him. Exactly the opposite. Even the angels said that the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So you and I are humble in the Lord, but we are not afraid. Because the enemy has an end. He is not strong enough to hold on to heaven. He tried, and the book of Revelation describes how he was banished from heaven. Jesus described how he saw Satan fall to earth. What these things mean is hard for us to understand, except in the simplest terms, he's a defeated enemy. And the only thing that he is doing now, no matter how much he would hate to admit it, is finally fulfilling the things of the Lord that the Lord has given him to do. He is intended, for whatever reason, to have this time, but the Lord will bring him to judgment, he and all those that have aligned with him. So finally, in closing, in summary, today's message is about these points. Recognize you have a foe. Don't ignore the enemy. It's so important to recognize that you have a personal adversary who hates you because God loves you. He doesn't hate you for anything personal about you. In a way, it's important in recognizing that there's a personal devil to recognize there's nothing personal about him other than the fact that he is a person. What I mean is don't take it personally that the devil hates you. He doesn't care enough about you to make it about you. It's about God. But what it reveals, and this is what's always wondrous to me, is when you begin to recognize these truths, it always brings you back to the love of God. The only reason the devil cares about you at all is because God cares about you so much. That's why the devil's against you. Because God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? See, that's the most amazing thing about that. In the end, the devil is a zero. In the end, what God says is, all of that amounts to nothing because I'm for them. But don't forget that there's a fight. And don't be afraid. But in righteous resolution with patient perseverance, encourage each other. Will you say those three things? In righteous resolution, with patient perseverance, encourage each other. Those were our three points today, essentially. Let me show you. Righteous resolution is that inner commitment that says, I'm not going to trifle with temptation. I'm going to repent when I do wrong, and I'm going to turn away from what's not right. I'm going to turn from sin. I don't want to give any place to sin in my life because that is giving a place to the fox that will feed on the feast that God intends for me and for you. So I'm going to make a righteous resolution, but I'm also going to recognize I can't do it on my own. I've got to call on Christ. There's a harvest of righteousness in your inner life that will come when you commit to resist sin and you ask the Lord to give you the strength to do that. That's one of the reasons why we've been fasting. 
so that we would have the strength to resist the flesh. With patient perseverance, we continue to call on Christ in troubles and to carry on in his mighty name, by his mighty spirit. There's a harvest of faithfulness in the world around us. So within us, we have a harvest that comes from purity. And around us, we have a harvest that comes from perseverance, where Jesus gives us the strength to sustain hardship so that no matter what comes against you, as bad as it might be, you're stronger because of God's strength, because of God's word, because of God's spirit, because of God's people. And therefore, we encourage each other. We encourage each other that no matter how bad it is, no matter how badly we failed, no matter how hard the present moment may be, the Lord is with us. The Lord will strengthen us. And the Lord wins. Trust that Jesus saves. Trust that Jesus wins. And experience the harvest of heaven that is the kingdom of God being fruitful in you. Strength to support others. So many of us are barely getting by in our walk with the Lord. And we think, how can I witness to somebody else? Because I'm, I'm downcast in myself. And the biggest change will come in your life when you recognize it's not because you're a bad person. I mean, who among us is good? But it's not because you're some specially bad person. It's not because God isn't for you. It's because you have an enemy that you've been ignoring. I remember once I had a lamp that was always flickering and stopped working at one point in an apartment that I had. And I went to replace that lamp thinking this lamp was no good and found little gnawing in the wire. There was a mouse that had been eating away at that wire underneath the table. I thought that the lamp was no good, but the reality was it was just a little thing, but it was chewing away at the source of light. There's those of us in the room hearing my voice today where you think the light of God is flickering in your life. You think the signal of God has turned to static and snow, but the reality is you have a little fox in the vineyard and you need to get him out. But don't be afraid. You've got a savior in your heart who will not only get the enemy out, but bring the Lord in. Hallelujah. Let's praise God for that. Now, that's only true if you are ready to tune into the Lord. It's only true if you're willing to plug into God. Lord, we want to tune into you. We want to turn on to you. We want to plug in to your word, to your will, to your ways. And we want to repent and renounce right now of anything, Lord, that isn't of you or that has harbored something of the enemy, something of rebellion, something of doubt, something of disobedience, something of dalliance or indulgence with things that are not righteous or worthy, not only of you, but of us. And each of us have these issues, Lord. It may even be that there's someone right now, Lord, who's thinking, I feel like, even though I've never gone this road before, even though I've never really been able to buy into this Bible stuff and this Jesus stuff, and now, now you're going to try and get me to believe in a devil? Come on. It's like a Warner Brothers cartoon. I can't buy this stuff, but somewhere in their heart right now, they're recognizing there's a word of truth here. And the truth is, there is a God who loves me. There is a Savior named Jesus. There is an enemy named Satan. All those things are true. And actually, I can see in my life that that's had a real effect to ruin, 
to steal, to destroy, to hamper harvest, to hide hope away, and to multiply hurt. But right now, I'm trusting in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Save me, save me from Satan. Save me from sin. Release me into life and let life be released in me through you. That's our prayer today, Lord. If it's yours, you just seal that with your own amen, your own covenant commitment.